Morning, everyone. All right, just before I start today, I want to say that there is an answer to today's sermon, but I'm not going to give it to you. I was speaking to someone I know a little while ago, and through the conversation they said that some time ago, uh, they'd received some feedback from multiple friends that, uh, that this guy is not a good listener. When they were talking about something, and it was interesting to him, uh, he was very involved in the conversation, but once they started talking about something that wasn't interesting to him, he disengaged from that conversation and would try to start steering it in a different direction. That feedback caused him to do some reflecting, and while initially a bit put out by this uh, honest comment from his friends, he started to reflect a little more and realised that it was true and that it's not a great look. He loves talking, uh, he loves having good conversations about things that are interesting to him, but he kind of disregarded everything else. The conversation had to be on his terms, uh, and obviously this had a negative effect on his relationships. I wonder if you've ever had a friend who likes to be in control of your conversations, who wants to talk about what they want to talk about, uh, and you find it hard to get a word in. Or if they do let you speak, uh, then you find it hard to kind of talk about your life sometimes. Seems like the relationship mostly revolves around them and what's interesting to them. Uh, it's likely that many of us would have encountered somebody like this at some point, and maybe you don't call them a friend because realising this pattern you decided you didn't want to be friends with them. That's kind of fair enough. Maybe if you've never found this with anyone you've encountered, you might need to take a step back and analyse what you do in conversations with people, just in case you're the one controlling the conversation. It can be really easy to get caught up in our own world. Whether it's in the conversations we have with people, uh, if it's prioritising one part of a life over another that probably shouldn't have priority, being d too disorganised to, uh, to make sure that we get everything that we need to get done, done, uh, it is very easy to get caught up in our own world in our own in and in our own stuff. And that is what happened to my friend. And that is something that, if we're not careful about, can and will happen to all of us. For me, getting caught up in my own world usually means I'm not prioritising my time effectively. Currently, I'm juggling a few balls like everyone else is, uh, you know, work and study and the other things that I've got going on. Um, but I've made sure not to have too much going on uh, so that I have the capacity to do all of the things that, that I'm currently juggling. Uh, of course, unexpected things come up and, and crazy and random things happen and that's okay, but for the most part, if I haven't got something done that I need to, it's because I've been getting caught up in my own world and I've not paid proper attention to the things that need it. Uh, that happened a little bit this morning when I rocked up to church and realised I'd forgotten a couple of things and it meant that I had to stress Chrissy out and ask her to bring those things that I'd forgotten. So getting caught up in my own world gave what was meant to be Chrissy's kind of one stress-free morning of the week 
a bit stressful for her, so sorry, it's my public apology. I wonder what getting caught up in your own world looks like for you. Do you find it easy to get distracted by all of the weird and wonderful things that the modern world has to offer? Are you someone who, if you don't take time to think about others, can find that you just want to talk about what you want to talk about? Do you find other people's lives and problems boring, but think your life and your problems are the most interesting thing on the planet? So yes, we've got a sermon series on prayer this month, uh, and I'm talking about contemplative prayer, and it's into these kinds of spaces uh, and more that contemplative prayer has something very real to offer. Contemplation, quite simply, is thinking about or looking thoughtfully at something for a long time. That sounds pretty good, except for the long time bit. I think uh, as an adult, once you've matured and kind of figure out who you are and where you're going and what you want to be, contemplation, looking thoughtfully at something for a long time, isn't that appealing because you've kind of already figured out uh, who you are and you've made sense of the things that you need to make sense of. So um, you, don't, you don't really need to think about things for a long time. And if you haven't hit that stage yet, uh, contemplation is appealing because there's just too many more enjoyable things to do. So then, what are you supposed to do when someone turns around and says, hey, you don't actually listen to your friends when you're having a conversation with them, or you're not prioritizing your time effectively, and it's having flow effects in your life and in the lives of those around you? Or what happens when nobody has said anything to you, but you start to feel this sense inside of you that there is something in your life that needs a little bit of examination and contemplation? Do you really want to sit down and spend a long time thinking about it? Wouldn't it just be easier to solve the problem straight off the bat and move on? The problem with that, of course, is that it's really that simple. If you've spent your life practicing a particular thing over and over, you get very good at it. And we've seen this on display recently with the Olympics that's been on recently and the Paralympics that are on at the moment. We see uh, very physical and tangible examples of what happens when you practice the same thing over and over really hard for a long time. These people are elite. I'm particularly impressed by uh, an Egyptian athlete uh, competing at the moment called Ibrahim Hamatu, who plays table tennis at the most elite level without arms. He holds the bat in his mouth, and uh, to serve the ball, he throws it up with his foot, and then he plays the whole rally holding the bat in his mouth, and he competes fiercely. That takes a lot of practice. The problem is when we want to change something a little less tangible, like the way that we interact with people or whatever it is that happens for each of us when we get caught up in our own worlds uh, because we have a lifetime of practice doing that thing that we need to then undo. And it's into this space that contemplative prayer has something very effective to offer. Scripture for today was Psalm 51. It's a psalm of David, and it's a very contemplative psalm. Uh, the psalm itself directly relates to a specific, uh, a specific point in David's life where he got caught up in his own world in a very big way and caused a lot of pain and suffering because of it. The heading for this psalm is, if, if your Bible has got a heading for it, is 
for the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. And I'll recap that story now so that we've got it fresh in our minds and, and we can understand the context that this uh, psalm comes out of, this contemplative prayer. So there are three main characters in this story. David, the king, Uriah, a soldier in the army, and Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. While Uriah is away on a military campaign, uh, David is walking on the roof of his palace and looks down and sees Bathsheba bathing in her own home. He probably should have looked away, and he also probably shouldn't have had a palace so big. Uh, but instead of looking away, he enjoys the view, um, and he even sends for her to be brought to the palace. They sleep together. Of course, Bathsheba didn't really have a choice in the matter, being summoned by the king. She was vulnerable, and she just had to do what she was told. And she becomes pregnant from this. David knows he's done the wrong thing, and so he tries to cover his tracks. It's getting worse at the start. He does something awful, and now he's continuing that same practice, getting caught up in his own selfishness and his own world again. He tries to cover his tracks by having Uriah return from the war for two nights. The first night, David expects Uriah to come back and spend the night with Bathsheba. But instead, he sleeps outside in solidarity with the troops that were still at the war. So the next night, David gets Uriah drunk in the hopes that with his inhibitions down, this time he will spend the night with his wife Bathsheba, but again Uriah abstains. Now to focus in on Uriah here for a moment, he's not really mentioned much elsewhere. He's in this story and he's mentioned elsewhere in the Old Testament to be one of the mighty men of Israel, who were a group of the best and most trusted fighters in the army. Uh, now, we don't know much about him, but I think we can draw a couple of conclusions about him from these mentions of Uriah. First, clearly he practiced physically. Uh, to be one of the best fighters in the whole army, he must have practiced his physical fitness regularly and honed uh, and disciplined and was disciplined in his fighting skills. Second, he also practiced good disciplines in the less tangible side of life. The side of life about having good character and not getting caught up in your own world. When he, in, when he is invited home for two nights by the king, he refuses to spend those nights with Bathsheba because he feels it's the right thing to do, even though I'm sure both he and Bathsheba would have sorely wanted the companionship of their partner, especially with the anxieties and longing that your spouse being away in war would have brought to their relationship. But even when he's drunk and he doesn't have those inhibitions, that just proves he really is a man of character and that it's so ingrained in him that he still chooses to do the right thing. So what does David do when Uriah and Bathsheba don't spend the night together? He makes another plan to cover his own tracks. He sends Uriah back to the war with secret instruction for the troops to battle in such a way that ensures Uriah will die while fighting. And David's plan succeeds. He starts by doing an incredible wrong to Bathsheba, and then to Uriah, which ends in his death. The abuse of an innocent woman and the death of a good man. This part of the story ends with, the thing David had done displeased the Lord. And while David may have been hiding this from himself, I think he knew it was the wrong thing as well. 
The prophet Nathan comes and tells David a story about a similarly unjust situation and asks David to pass judgment on this story that is told. When David condemns the wrongdoer, Nathan reveals that the story is an analogy for what David has done and David realizes he has condemned himself. It is into this context, into this space of anguish and pain and the realization that David has made it all about himself and people have suffered for it, that he writes Psalm 51. And this psalm is highly contemplative. When people think of contemplative prayer, I think uh, that the automatic thoughts can be to think about someone sitting in silence and trying to empty their mind and waiting for God to speak into that emptiness. And that is valid. Um, But contemplation really is thinking about something for a long time. At 19 verses, Psalm 51 is maybe a a middling psalm in terms of length. Um, But behind these words for me are evidence that David has spent a long time thinking about his transgressions. Thinking about how he had wronged Bathsheba, Uriah, and God through his actions. And to quickly fly through Psalm 51, David talks about, God have mercy on me, I know my transgressions. Uh, I, I have done what is evil in your sight, God. I've surely always been sinful from birth, but you desired faithfulness for me, even from that time. Create a pure heart in me, God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. My sacrifice to you is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. And uh, the version that Alex read had some different words in there. I I really loved the bit that said, Lord, make me a man of integrity and of wisdom. Humble me. Uh, That is not an easy prayer to pray. A prayer that is open and honest, uh, and especially open and honest for David to publish it in the way he did as well. That is a heartfelt, contemplative prayer that was born out of the terrible situation that David had made for himself. And one that showed he really spent the time thinking about what he had done and where he needed to go from here. And it wasn't back to his old ways of doing things, where he was the centre of the universe and he got to control things the way he wanted it. His contemplation brought him into a new space of learning about himself, about God, and about his way forward from that moment. David's story is an extreme one, with truly terrible actions and equally terrible consequences. And I understand that in our lives, it is unlikely that most of us would not have engaged in behaviour this extreme. I guess the blessing is that whether you've done a small slight or you've gone to this extreme like David has, uh, God forgives us in any case. But what is true for David is true for us. We have things in our lives that we are blind to or that we, that we neglect that aren't actually helpful for us and for those around us. And it is into this space that contemplative prayer has a lot of power. I've got to be honest with you, when I started thinking about writing this sermon, This wasn't exactly the place that I thought I was going to go. I was thinking more along the lines of uh, extended periods of silence and thinking deeply on God and how that benefits, which benefits us, which to be clear it does. Um, But when I was reading through Psalm 51 and the situation it came out of, 
uh, and, and the contemplation that went into this. There was a whole new level of, uh, of depth and a level of wrestling here that I just thought was worth talking about. What I was expecting to talk about were uh, examples of Jesus in contemplative prayer from the New Testament, which we can uh, find quite a few of. Like shortly before he was crucified in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, where he prays to God, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours, saying, I don't want to die on the cross, but I will do your will, Father, not mine. And other examples of Jesus going off early in the morning before the day had started, before people had flocked to him to hear him speak and to ask for healing, where he spends time with God. I was, I was expecting to spend more time talking about that. Uh, and especially about this Jesus having one-on-one time with God to be filled with him, to be ready for the day. Uh, that's the kind of contemplative prayer that I've done a bit of in my life and I'm a little more familiar with. But again, as I was reading through Psalm 51, it struck me with how powerful this kind of deep contemplation and wrestling can be. We have many psalms written by David in the Old Testament, some short, some long. But reading this made me wonder just how long, uh, how much time he spent wrestling alone in his thoughts uh, uh, with God before he wrote them down and shaped them into these beautiful and poetic words that we can read today. I guess that's something worth mentioning as well. Your prayers don't have to be poetic. Uh, What's important in contemplation and any time you spend in prayer is coming to it open and honestly, like David did. Poetry is not something required of us. We don't have to aim to produce a psalm, but we do want to contemplate and wrestle open and honestly with the things that are going on in our lives. So contemplative prayer, it's powerful. And as we can see from David... We can use it to confront things in our own lives where we need transformation. And that's what prayer has the capacity to do when we really invest in it, transform us. So I realize at this stage it's probably helpful for me to talk a little more practically about contemplative prayer and how to do it. Well, if contemplation is thinking about something for a long time, then contemplative prayer uh, is bringing that something to God for a long time still means we're thinking about it, but we're also bringing God into that thought process and into a conversation about it as well. When we need to think something through or contemplate it, uh, contemplate an issue in life, it's common to try and think about it from many different angles. It can be the same with contemplative prayer. Um, I've spoken a little bit about a form of prayer called examine. Um, I spoke a bit in a sermon I gave at the start of the year on the discipline of meditation. Um, and an examine is a great example of the way that contemplative prayer can help you to look at things from different angles. It's not just sitting there in silence for 30 minutes to an hour, but reviewing your day or the issue at hand um, and going, how do I feel about this? What do I think about this? Is there a scripture that gives insight into this? Do I sense the Holy Spirit leading me somewhere on this issue? And God, give me hope to face this challenge tomorrow. Studies have been done on these forms of prayer, and the results are powerful, even if they aren't surprising. For people who engaged regularly regularly in contemplative types of prayer, uh, they felt closer to God. These people felt like they had more hope, 
they had greater resilience, they were less stressed and anxious, and something really interesting was that for people who kept this up for a long time, they found that a discipline of contemplative prayer enriched their lives even when they didn't feel like God was speaking to them. And they separated their prayers into two categories, consolations and desolations. Consolations being when prayer was positive and uh, maybe through it they felt the presence of God or they felt God speaking to them or there was a comfort in Scripture. And the desolations were when their prayers felt empty and barren and even like they'd been abandoned by God. But even in those times of desolation in prayer, for those who practiced this for a long time, they said that those desolations were enriching for them as well because it built up this discipline of spending time with God. It built character within them, persevering through those desolations, not unlike Uriah having that depth of character in the midst of his uh, temptation and inebriation. So this examine, I, I ran a study on the examine recently, um, which you may remember me talking about. Uh, and as a part of that, I had to write up a structure of, of an examine prayer, a contemplative prayer. So what I want to challenge you guys with this week is to go away and try examine. Go away and have a crack at a contemplative prayer. I said at the start there's an answer to today's sermon, but I'm not going to give it to you. The answer is you guys need to do this yourself. Uh, I can talk about contemplative prayer for a very long time, but unless you try it yourself, you're not going to see the fruits of it. What I'm going to do is make that prayer available on the website. Uh, instead of sermon notes for today on your app or on the website, the sermon notes will be the structure, and it's a way of guiding you through this so it's not just sitting there in silence because that can be really difficult, especially when you're not used to a prayer form like this. Um, and so having something to guide you through it and to take you through the different angles can be really helpful. I grew up in a tradition where we had communion every week and as I was growing up, it just became one of those things that happened I didn't really understand why it happened every week. Well, I, I got the concept, but I guess it was just another thing to do. Um, but communion is a form of contemplation. Contemplation doesn't just have to be on the issues and the challenges and the things that go wrong in our lives, but we can contemplate on the good things as well. And so when we come to communion, I try to take that as an opportunity to contemplate on Jesus' death and resurrection, which I know about very well, uh, and yet I have an opportunity here to actually think hard about this thing, even though I'm very aware of what it means and all of that, an opportunity to think hard about that, and for something new to be revealed to me through that. You might have another form of contemplative prayer that you've been thinking about, or that you've heard about, or that you've read about, and so you don't have to use the examine um, if you've got one that, that you're seeking out currently, please use that. But uh, if you don't, I, I really challenge you to go and have a go at the examine. Try and spend 10 minutes on it and then spend 20 minutes on it the next day and see how long you can spend uh, contemplating. And It says you've got to think about it for a long time. See how you go and see what comes off it.
So, so yes, I'm going to end there. That's my challenge to you. Go away and, and try and have a go at this prayer of contemplation. And whether you're coming to it with a challenge or an issue, or whether it's something you really want to celebrate, this has something really deep inside it that can transform you if you give it the time. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that no matter what we do, no matter the ways that we get caught up in our own world uh, and the things that get in the way of us spending time with you um, and glorifying you, that when we come to you with contrite hearts, when we humble ourselves before you, you accept us and you forgive us. We thank you for the wonderful gift of communion and the opportunity that brings us to contemplate what the death, death and resurrection of Christ means for us. Um, and Lord, I just pray that we can be encouraged uh, and we can be challenged to spend time contemplating the things of life, contemplating you and your character, uh, and that when we do this, you can bless us, that you can bless us with a transformation, with a new insight, and that we can come to not just a greater understanding of ourselves, but come to a much greater understanding of you and into deeper relationship with you as well. Amen.